I want to say welcome again. I see a lot of guest faces this morning, and you should know that virtually all of our senior leadership are gone. So no one with any authority is here today. <laughs> um, which, with people like Phil and Ian and I, means, oh, this is going to be fun. No, um, there's, some, there's some danger there. Um, but we are, we're, we're standing in. Um, all the leadership is at a conference in Northern Ireland today, so I hope they're having a great time and being enriched. And we get to hold the fort while they are there. And that's the fun we have. My name is Jeremy. I'm a PhD student here at the University of St. Andrews. I just attend this church, and they sometimes uh, really unwisely give me a microphone, uh, which is what I fear has happened today. We, as a church, have been in the book of Acts for a series of months now. And today we come to Acts 9, which is one of my favorite passages. It's the conversion of Saul. And to kind of catch you up on how we've looked at this, we began the, our series in Acts a bit oddly to some in the book of Joshua. And we teased out how there appear to be a lot of connections between the book of Joshua and the narrative of conquest and inheritance of the land and how Luke frames the book of Acts. Um, that there is some kind of new conquest involved where the church as a new kind of invading army is advancing into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and in fact, this is what we see in Acts 1.8, which is this promising passage by Jesus, who says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the programmatic verse of the book of Acts. Now, instead of conquering by means of swords and axes and exterminations, now there's a conquering by means of the Spirit, where the Spirit is the one taking captives and he's converting lives and he's transforming. This is a different kind of kingdom than any have seen before. Now, if we are right that Acts is a kind of conquest narrative but by the Spirit and things are moving forward, then anyone reading the book of Acts at this point might think the mission had stalled just a little. Um, at this point, you've got the disciples kind of huddled in fear in Jerusalem. Stephen's been killed, and, and there's been a scattering. and Things aren't quite going like they're expecting. The deacons actually follow Jesus' ministry. So the disciples appoint deacons to help them uh, serve tables, and then Stephen ends up out preaching all of them and getting killed, which is amazing. And then Philip, another deacon, ends up being the one who goes to Samaria to preach the gospel. And then uh, shortly after that, he ends up preaching to an Ethiopian. And in the ancient world, Ethiopia was basically the ends of the earth. And so Philip is doing the work, and he's going off. But things still don't seem to be going quite according to plan. And we've got this guy named Saul, who's the chief enemy of the church. He's a Pharisee, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's connected, he's motivated, and he's self-righteous, which is a pretty toxic combination. And he's got it all. Now, from one perspective in the book of Acts, the disciples are sitting on the hands of conquest. They're fearful, they're embattled, but God was about to ignite a charge that nobody expected and which would change the landscape of the church. It would stretch it beyond the expectations of the original disciples of Jesus. So let's read about the ignition of that charge in today's passage. And we're going to read Acts 9, 1 through 19. If it's all right, I will have you read this aloud with me. Can we do that? So it's going to be on the screen, and let's go together. Three, two, one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was at Damascus Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Well, it's a great story. And it's such a great story, you're going to hear it three more times in the book of Acts. Luke has an economy of words, but he tells this story three times. Uh, This is how important it is for the church. Now, after this event, Saul immediately starts preaching. Um, And we should note, sometimes, uh, maybe you've heard that Saul gets a new name at his conversion, Saul becomes Paul. Uh, It's probably not the case. Many people in the ancient world had two names, just like John Mark has two names, who we believe wrote Mark. And so John's his Jewish name, Mark is his his, um, local name. Uh, Saul was, uh, was Saul's Jewish name, and Paul was probably his local Greek or Latin name. For getting around. This is not, it's not a name change at this point. So we'll talk to him, we'll talk about him interchangeably in a moment here. And so, um, but he begins preaching, and immediately upon preaching, he causes trouble, and people want to kill him. And so they send him off to Tarsus, where he's going to spend maybe the next 14 years. And verse, uh, Acts 9.31 is one of my favorite verses, because after they send Paul away, they say, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. We relaxed a little while because Saul was gone. And in 14 years, they're not going to have peace anymore because Saul's coming back. Uh, Little subtle jokes. I think Luke is in on the joke because he knew Paul. Now, as much as I personally am excited about the book of Acts and about the person of Paul, as I thought about this message this week, I'm pretty convinced there are two things that I'm supposed to focus on for us today. Now, the first of these is how it is that the Spirit of God is the power for change, how God's Spirit brings change to us. And the second of these is how the Spirit guides us in our service. He leads us in service. And all of this will help us, I think, to pray more effectively for abundant life. 
I want abundant life. I hope you want abundant life. But it's going to be the spirit who converts us and the spirit who equips us in service that accesses that abundant life for us. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's talk about the spirit who brings change. First off, it's the spirit of God who is the power for personal change. He is the effective power to bring change to people's lives. It's not bootstrap effort. You're not expected just to be tougher or meaner or harder to get these things done. That's not what brings about change. It's not, getting, it's not about getting around the right people. Oh, I could really change if only I had the right people around me, the right friends, the right connections, the right training, the right degree, the right letters after my name. Then I'd be able to do this stuff. It's not about diet or exercise or therapy that's going to bring great personal change. These things are great. They're helpful. Don't get me wrong. Diet, therapy, exercise, wonderful. But they're not the things that's the chief power of personal change. And honestly, folks, it's not a head wound. Not going to get struck on the head and having a massive personality shift. This is not the thing that brings personal change. Paul is about as hardened to Christianity as it is possible to be. He hates followers of Jesus. They're heretics. They're abusers. They're destroyers of God's way. They are, in his mind, worshipers of a false god, and they're deceiving God's true people with this false god. They are worthy of destruction. And so Paul makes plans. He wants to and is on his way to a life of Christian killing. And I think, honestly, Paul's the kind of guy who's going to keep a belt where he puts notches for every Christian he's killed, right? And then he hangs up the belt and gets it. He's a leather worker, right? So he's going to make extra belts and he put notches on it. He's going to keep track of this stuff because he's got a vendetta. Now, he's in the middle of executing this plan when, bam, the Spirit of God takes a shot at him. Now, Paul thought he could see, but God has made him blind. He thought he was in control, but God rendered him completely helpless. He thought he knew what was going on, but God, it showed, had another plan in mind. And Paul had had an encounter with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, our takeaway from this is pretty clear. The Spirit is the power for change. Paul is calcified. He's hardened. He's sealed in his righteous anger, which is honestly some of the most difficult sealing to remove from people. When people are sealed in righteous anger, that's all the doors are closed inside. And he's closed in his worldview, but the Spirit comes and turns Paul around. And this is it. If he can change Paul, he can change anybody. If he can work with somebody like Paul, he can work with people like us as well and the people we know. Now, throughout my years in the church, I've come to detect what I think is a bit of faithlessness on our part when it comes to believing that the Spirit can change people. We're a little faithless in our belief in the power of the Spirit to change. We make judgments based on our perception of people's receptivity. So we see other people with calcified hearts who turn their backs on the faith. We see people with long-time resistance. Some of you have parents who have never yet believed, and you have, you have wonder in your heart, will my parents ever come to faith? And you know what? You don't believe the Spirit has power to change them. Some of you are parents, and you have kids who've walked away from the faith. And you live in fear that, oh, I just don't know the Spirit can reach them. And you're worried about the shape of their hearts. Um, we've got friends who we share the gospel with for years, that they've turned their backs on us, that they hate us, and they've been angry at us every time we open our mouths about Jesus. And there's a bit of faithlessness on our part for the power of the Spirit to meet them, to encounter them, to transform them. We also make, and this is a personal pet peeve, we make judgments based on age. Um, I, 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 every once in a while, I get to this point where I'm speaking with older members of the church. I'm sorry for those of you who are older members if you've done this. I'm not really angry at you, but I kind of am. Um, 
is, is they, start, they start kind of maundering about youth. They're like, oh, you know, we really just, the youth of the future of the church, we really just have to do all that we can to reach out to the youth because they're going to carry things on. Like, come on, people. What about the power of the Spirit to whack old people on the head too? God is not discreet in his use of resources to advance his kingdom. He likes 90-year-olds as much as he likes 19-year-olds to do things. And we need to believe in God's power to transform people who we think are beyond. We have to believe in that power and ask the Spirit to start doing this stuff. And we have to care for the youth too. That's okay. But never at the expense of other people who need to meet Jesus. Have you guys, you you ever met adult converts? People who late in life come to meet Jesus. It's unbelievable the stuff that happens. And the people around them start getting transformed. It's like a domino effect. And they can't stop talking about Jesus. And you're kind of like, hey, sometimes you wish if they were a little younger, they'd know to shut up. But now they're old enough to know that they don't care anymore. And they're just going to talk about Jesus. That's the kind of people I want talking about Jesus. People who don't care what other people think. Well, within reason. Okay. We also make judgments based on the perceived size of the movement of the Spirit. We think big movements are more valuable than subtle or small movements. Now, Paul's the poster boy for the big testimony, right? I was a Christian killer until I met the Spirit of God, right? He gets transformed. Or we think we have to have a testimony that involves, I don't know, heroin abuse and living in the gutters and a horrible life of misery, and then we met the Spirit, we have a transformation. And then we meet somebody who says, yeah, I grew up in the church. I don't have a very good testimony. And we make judgments based on these things. And that's an error. It's the same spirit who moves in a big way as the one who moves in a small way. Will we judge the quality of his work based on our perception of its size? I think that's a mistake. One of my favorite subtle testimonies is that of John Wesley. Some of you know who John Wesley was. He founded the Methodists. Um, he's, he's searching through life. He goes through all this stuff. He tries, he tries bootstrap effort to make his faith work. Uh, he's part of this holy club that's a radical failure. He and his friends try to get it right. Um, and it's just, it's just miserable for them. And then one day, he's sitting in a church service. This is, I think, on the record for me. This is probably the most boring church service in history. The minister was reading from the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on the Romans. You think about this poor guy. This poor minister is probably cashed out. He's tired. Maybe his kids are sick. He doesn't have any energy. He hasn't had any time to prepare his own message. And he probably pulled some book off the shelf and said, well, I'll do this this morning. He's reading from the introduction, and John Wesley's in the room, and he says, my heart was strangely warmed, and a shudder went throughout Christendom, because Wesley was going to lead a renewal movement, of which in some ways the vineyard is a child. Uh, We can't make judgments based on the bigness and the smallness of our perception of those movements. We need to be receptive to the Spirit's move, whatever shape it is. We want to receive him doing his work. Now, as an aside, I think it's important to say that I think conversion, this encounter with the Spirit, is a greater and more important miracle than any healing recorded in the Bible. A changed life, a changed heart, is more essential and more important than a changed outward physical body. And as evidence of this, I want to remind you that many of the people Jesus healed never came to follow him. He healed ten lepers, nine of them walked off. Only one came back to give thanks. Judas by the power of the Spirit, healed and exercised. He did the works of the Spirit. He was a key witness to these things, and he walked away too. It's more important that we see people be converted than it is necessarily that we see other flashy works of the Spirit. We can't make judgments based on what we think the Spirit is doing. 
The inner work is the key work that we want to see. The outer stuff's fantastic. Let's pray for it. Let's see it happen. I'm not saying anything about that. I'm saying we want both. So, the Holy Spirit is the power for change, and I believe that we ought to be believing in his power to change. His power to change both us and the people that we are actively engaged with and praying for. So that was the first lesson from this passage. The second one is about the Spirit and our service. And I see in Paul's conversion is a relationship between Paul's life before conversion and his ministry after it. And actually, I think that all the seeds of Paul's life of service are prominent in his ministry before he meets Jesus or his actions. So let's consider just four of these. First of these is his education. He is a Pharisee. He's trained by the best minds of his day. Paul is essentially like an Eton boy of Judaism, right? He's curated for leadership. He's on his way up the ranks. He's got unparalleled knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. He's not the guy, like if you show up for like Hebrew Bible memorization contest, he's not the guy you want on the other side of the team. You're like, I'm going to lose because he knows more than me, way more than me in these things. His education is expansive. The second, he's connected. I mean, he knows the high priest personally. Uh, we find out in another passage that he was a student of Gamaliel, who's one of the key uh, Pharisee teachers of his days. And in the ancient world, as today, names opened doors. The people you knew gave you access. They gave you connections. I love how in this passage, he's, getting, he's gotten a letter of recommendation from the high priest. He's utilizing his connections to get things done. With a letter from a high priest in hand, he's authorizing him for his vendetta against this evil sect. And Paul understands the power of a letter to communicate will. He also understands the politics of getting things done. He knows how to make things happen. And then fourth, he's making captives. He's on his way to Damascus to bring people back in chains for trial before the Sanhedrin. He's capturing people for the sake of God. And all of this stuff is humorously present in his life before he meets Jesus. Now here's Saul, missionary in utero, on his way down from Jerusalem, and he gets thwacked by the Spirit. He experiences a radical reshuffling of his expectations about just who Yahweh might be. He's going to spend the next 14 years or so rereading all of his scriptures in light of Christ. He's got this lengthy period of personal training. And let's consider again the four factors. His education. The Pharisee, with the extensive knowledge of Hebrew scripture and theology, now holds the key to unlocking all of it. And Paul sees in the story of Christ throughout the Hebrew Bible. Arguably, he sees it on every single page of the Hebrew Bible. And the wealth and the mass of his Bible knowledge are now put fully to the service of making Christ known. Uh, Paul's letters precede the Gospels. Paul is our first theologian, the first one putting the story together for us. And it's because of his training that he does these things. His connections. Paul trades in all of his former credentials for just one credential, to be known by Christ Jesus. So he used to know the earthly high priest, and he trades that in for knowing the heavenly high priest. And as much as he thought the earthly high priest would open doors for him, now he actively trusts the heavenly high priest to open every door for him. His connections are much broader because he's got Jesus in hand. Letters of recommendation. (laughs) I just love the fact that letters play so prominent a role in Paul's life. And this should be no surprise to anyone who's actually read the New Testament. He's, he's written a lot of it for us, and we preserve it because this is a guy who went to get letters and ended up writing letters. I just think it's hilarious. Paul knew the value of the written word, knew how it was that in the ancient world a letter could stand for the presence of a person. 
If I read the letter of Paul out loud to one of his churches, it's as if Paul's voice was present in that church. A letter stands for person. And he would use that power to write the letters that would continue to encourage both the church then and continue to encourage us today. And lastly, of course, is the making of captives. And if you don't think God has a sense of irony, read again. Paul is on his way to make captives when he is the one who is made captive. Didn't see that coming, did he? He's on his way to take believers by hand back to Damascus, but he must be led by the hand as a blind man from the road. Now, his self-perception as a captive of Christ Jesus is going to be unmoved from this point forward. Most of the letters Paul writes open with Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. Paul's self-identity is I'm owned by this guy. That's who I am. When he talks in 2 Corinthians about taking every thought captive to Christ, this captivity language is still in his mind. Uh, There's a lovely verse in 2 Corinthians 2.14 where he talks about being led in triumphal procession. Um, The triumphal procession is the Roman conquest procession where you bring a series of slaves back to Rome and then you reenact the conquest in front of the emperor by killing the slaves in front of him. And Paul says, that's me. I'm Christ's slave being killed for the glory of God. This is who he thinks of himself as. Sometimes we sing that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. It's a lovely song, but if Paul were writing it, it would be, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Right? It doesn't sing as well. and It doesn't, it doesn't kind of satisfy our little heartstrings. Oh, I love being a child of God. It's kind of a nice song. But no, I'm owned by Jesus. He purchased me. Um, and in some ways, the Christian life is not from slavery to freedom, but from different, one kind of service to another, from a slavery that is oppressive to a service that is life-giving. And this is the message that Paul provides for us. So I see in Paul's narrative an unexpected repurposing of all of the pieces of his life. They used to be under Paul's control, and now they are under Christ's. They used to be at the service of Paul's agenda, and now they've been sectioned to the agenda of Christ. And we can argue, God was the one who put those things there in the first place. He gave them all these pieces to begin with. What I want to suggest is that what we see for Paul is true for us as well. In the Spirit, we will discover an unexpected repurposing of the pieces of our lives. He's littered us with gifts, experiences, with connections, with history, with education, skills, and with talents that he is eager to bring to fullness in our service for him. Some of the most disparate things of your life are being brought into service with Christ Jesus. And I think he's, he's glorified when we see those things brought together. And I also want to suggest that almost all of these pieces are present for you even now. God's not in the business of sending people on hero journeys, like you have to go get the spiritual spear of destiny from the demon of despair, and then you can use that spear of destiny to fight God's battles. Whatever he wants you to do, it's probably at hand already. You've already got all the pieces you need to be an effective servant of Christ Jesus now. Um, there's a lovely little phrase, maybe you've heard it, it's kind of catchy, my uncle likes to say this. He says, God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? He doesn't look for qualified people, and then he says, oh yeah, I can use you and you. He appoints people and he says, I'll give you everything you need to do the work, if you'll be faithful. And I think that's us as well. So the Spirit is our power for personal change, and the seeds of our service are present already within us. I believe these things. And to these, I want to add the words, come, Holy Spirit. Come. And do that work in us. 
Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 10 is one of my, one of my favorite verses uh, where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That Christ has come that we might have abundant life. He wants us to be alive in him. And I think that abundant life cannot mean a life apart from God and apart from God's spirit. It cannot be a life of self-satisfied salvation apart from service in him. It is a life lived in and through the spirit as he takes us and transforms us in his service. Therefore, come Holy Spirit that we might have abundant life. Transform us. Equip us. Qualify us. Come. Do what it is that needs doing. And that might mean knocking us over. That might mean rattling us and shaking off our dust. It might mean saturating these calcified hearts that we have and the thick layers of hardening that keep us from hearing and being obedient. If you think about it, the prayer for the coming of the Spirit is actually quite a dangerous prayer. It's not a prayer for Jesus, come and make me feel good. It's Jesus, come and have your way. And there's some risk there in that prayer. We might pray like Paul, uh, in the spirit of Paul, Holy Spirit, blind us that we might see. Holy Spirit, wound us that we might love. Holy Spirit, challenge us so that we can see you work. I'll take the discomfort if it means I get to see the Spirit of God doing things in people's lives. Holy Spirit, change me that I might serve. Now again, I don't think we need to confuse, excuse me, no, not just think. We need to be careful about confusing the big with the small. You might be Saul, who needs to be hit on the head and transformed by something, or you also might be Ananias, to whom God is speaking and to whom all you have to do is say, here I am, Lord. He's looking for your obedience. If you're Ananias, maybe God has already spoken to you. Maybe he's already given you what you need to do, and there's just some courage waiting for these things. I love this conversation. (laughs) The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he says, here I am, Lord. Great, good to go. And then he gives him these really specific instructions. Rise, go to Straight Street, house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Maybe you've heard of him. Behold, he's praying. Okay, go on. He's seen a vision, Ananias coming, laying hands on him, so he might regain his sight. (laughs) But Ananias talked back to Jesus and said, "Um, Lord, this is his voice sounded like, "Um, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. (laughs) Um, And um, he's done a lot of evil for your saints in Jerusalem. You got to hear, there's just some terror in this guy's voice because he knows who Saul is. Are you sure, Jesus? And Jesus says, yeah, go for it, Ananias. And he does, and he obeys, and things happen. Um, I like to imagine, I don't think this happened, but I like to imagine that God had to speak to a couple of disciples before Ananias said yes, right? Like the Lord maybe called some guy named Cleopas. Cleopas, I want you to get up and go to Straight Street to the house of Judas where the guy's name Saul of Tarsus is doing things. And Cleopas woke up and said to himself, oh, I just had a horrible dream. I dreamed the Lord told me to go and do this thing. Oh, I'm going to go run it off. Try to go back to sleep. Okay? Or maybe the Lord uh, goes, he gives up on Cleopas and he goes to Lucius. 
says, Lucius, Brother Lucius, I want you to go to the house on Straight Street of Judas and meet this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Lucius said, No! Under no circumstances will I do that, Lord. Just straight up refuses. Right? Or maybe he, he gives up on uh, Lucius and then goes to uh, like a, maybe Thaddeus. Thaddeus, Thaddeus, I want you to go to the house on Straight Street to, the, to where Judas is and meet this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Then he says, mm, yes, Lord. I'm gonna, I need to meet the Saul of Tarsus in my heart <laughs> to make the street straight within me. <laughs> yes, Lord, yes. Now, n- none of this is, uh, may, I imagine that God just spoke to Ananias and you knew Ananias would say yes, but I think we are very competent at coming up with excuses for not obeying the Spirit of God. And I think that is true. And the, the meeting encounter with God's Spirit may be big, where he strikes us and, and he astonishes us, and it may be subtle, where our obedience is necessary to go and watch the Spirit of God work, where he's doing other things and he's waiting for us to join in and be part of that. And so don't make judgments about the big and the small when it comes to the Spirit. It's the same Spirit and the same power doing these things. If we are really going to ask God's Spirit to show up and move among us, we've got to prepare ourselves to go where He wants us to go. So let's do it. We're going to have a time of worship and prayer now. I invite Tim to come up and pick up the, and play some dulcet tones on the guitar. And uh, no, we're going to pray and we're going to invite the Spirit. I'm going to invite the Spirit to come upon us today. I'm going to trust that you know where he's meeting you. Or you maybe don't know and you're about to know, and I hope that's good too. Um, If you would like to receive prayer this morning for anything at all, uh, as Tim plays and as we sing, I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive prayer. And as you come forward, members of the KV home groups will come forward, and they're going to pray for you. They've all been trained in prayer. Uh, So everyone praying for people is part of our home groups and knows what they're doing. Uh, and they will lift you up for whatever it may be. Uh, maybe this morning you, you know what God's asking and need a little, a little push to be obedient. And I pray, I pray God's blessing on you in that. And maybe some of you are starved for the Spirit of God. And you think, I just want to know God's Spirit. So come forward and receive prayer to be filled with the Spirit in a new way. Maybe some of you are ill and you want uh, relief and healing from things going on in your life. Come forward and let us pray that the Spirit does a work in your body. Whatever the wound may be, emotional, uh, physical, however it plays out. So I invite you to stand and let me say a prayer for you. And then we'll begin. Holy Spirit, you have been at work in You have been at work in every single heart in this room. Whether they know it or not. Whether they felt it or not. Whether they know you personally or not. Guide us this morning as we come alongside you to see you do your thing. Meet people. If we need to be hit on the head, hit us on the head. If we need to be nudged, nudge us. Come, Holy Spirit.